0: welcome to the april 22nd episode of the enjoying the bible podcast i'm matt ellis and i'm the pastor of the first baptist church in polk city florida today's reading is 2 samuel 14 through 15 and luke chapter 17 hopefully you've already spent time in god's word so let's get started 2 Samuel chapter 14. As this chapter opens up, everybody could tell that David uh, was continually distraught over his estranged relationship with his son, Absalom. And if the leader is struggling, a general principle is... It will negatively affect virtually everyone and everything that is under his or her leadership. And so it's not in an organization, it's not in a church's best interest for the leader to uh, have some issues that are unresolved. Um, but the problem was, in 2 Samuel 14, is, is no one knew how to remedy the problem. So Joab took matters into his own hands. Listen to verses 1 through 3. Joab, and remember, Joab is the one who is leading David's army. He's his top commander. Joab, son of Zeruiah, realized that the king's mind was on Absalom. And I just want to interject, Joab was not somebody who thought about things. He did stuff. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa to bring a wise woman from there. He told her, pretend to be mourning. Dress in mourning clothes and don't put on any oil. Acts like a woman who has been mourning for the dead for a long time. Go to the king and speak these words to him. And then Joab told her exactly what to say, verses 1 through 3. So this woman came to David, and uh, according to what Joab had told her, she told David that she was a widow and that she had only two sons, but those two sons had gotten into a fight, and one son killed the other son. Now, she said, the community was asking for her only living relative, her son who had committed the murder. They, The community was asking that they could administer justice on him. And she was saying this would leave her as a widow with no sons, no family at all. And so she uh, reeled in David with the story and he agreed to issue a command that forbid the death of her only remaining son. And then, in verse 12, Then the woman said, Please, may your servant speak a word to my lord the king? Speak, he replied. And then the lady drew the parallel and said that she was fighting for her son, and David agreed to help her. Yet he wasn't fighting for his own son, Absalom. He appeared content to let Absalom, his son, remain banished from the kingdom. Just like when Nathan told a story and reeled David in and then pointed the finger at him and said, You just pronounced your own guilt. This woman was essentially doing the same thing. And I love it when the woman finished and David spoke. Listen to verses 18 and 19. Then the king answered the woman, I'm going to ask you something. Don't conceal it from me. Well, let my lord the king speak, the woman replied. The king asked, did Joab put you up to this? <laughs> the woman answered, as you live, my lord, the king, no one can turn to the right or left from all my lord, the king says, yes, your servant Joab is the one who gave orders to me. He told your servant exactly what to say. Uh, I mean, I, I think that while this was a, there was a major rift in the relationship, I don't know that this would have been something serious that he was holding against Joab. This may have been something of a, of a little bit said in jest. Did Joab put you up to this? And then maybe giving a wink to Joab as if, man, <laughs> you did it again. But yet, knowing that uh, the hard work was yet ahead, the hard work of, do we even want to work this out? Well, when it was said and done, a decision was made, and listen to verse 21, then the king said to Joab, I hereby grant this request, go bring back the young man Absalom. And so Joab bowed, he fell to the ground, his face to the ground, and he thanked the king, but King David wasn't finished Verses 23 and 24, So Joab got up, went to Geshur, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king said, He may return to his house, but he may not see my face. So Absalom returned to his house, but he did not see the king. Why? Why? We, we could ask the question, why did King David not want to see his son? Why was Absalom not invited to the palace? Well, we aren't specifically told, but some of the possible reasons may be, one, maybe, that David was still furious that Absalom had killed Amnon, one of David's other sons, and he just couldn't forgive him. Or maybe David believed that the people of Israel expected him to not be too quick to forgive Absalom for killing a potential heir to the throne. That's possible. Or maybe David knew how to reconcile with the Lord, but he didn't know how to reconcile with his son. Sometimes it's more confusing with family because the emotions are much more blinding. They can be blinding. But what we do know, we don't know David's motive for saying he cannot come in and see my face. What we do know is that Absalom had a few children while his dad was ignoring him for two whole years. So three years he was away from Jerusalem and now two years he's in Jerusalem, um, but the king is still not willing to see him. Verses 27 and 28, three sons were born to Absalom and a daughter named Tamar. Well, that's interesting. Um, I wonder if this was something that he just wanted to name his daughter after his sister who had been raped, or I wonder if this was a statement um, that what Absalom was holding on to was the rape that had taken place with his sister and nothing had been done about it. And so everything in Absalom's mind is centered on Tamar. That is the the thing, the anchor that has been thrown down that he cannot get past. Now, I do not want to whim, seem as if I'm whimsical about this. I don't see how you get past something like that. I don't see how a female gets past something like that. But I'm saying that that would be Tamar's struggle and those who would be compassionate enough to step in to help her get past that. But I think Absalom is just holding on to bitterness. Anger has fermented and it's turned into bitterness. It can really mess with your mind when your dad is ignoring you for two whole years. And this is what Absalom was going through it makes you feel like the authority figure in your life doesn't deem you as worthy of communication communicating with you desire the affirmation of your father but he refuses to give you what you desire so the two extremes you know there's there's all there's a spectrum so there's all sorts of ways you can respond but on one is one extreme you can curl up in a ball and and begin to self-destruct because the man in your life is not affirming you or You could go to the other extreme and get so furious that he would treat you like that, that you were just always seething in anger. I believe that Absalom was on the latter end of the spectrum. He was angry. And if anger, like I said a while ago, camps out in your mind and heart, it will ferment and it'll turn into bitterness. What's bitterness? That's when you're just angry at everything and you don't even know why. Why? An Absalom uh, would have felt justified in killing Amnon for overpowering and raping Tamar, especially since his dad did nothing about it for two years. So with every passing day, Absalom is becoming angrier at his dad and even bitter. And he feels justified because his dad did nothing about it. So he demands that he be invited to, to speak with his dad, the king. He calls for Joab twice but he refuses but Joab refuses to come. He apparently doesn't want to be involved in in a altercation or a, a rift between two adult men. He probably would rather sit this one out. But Absalom then burns down a portion of Joab's barley field and of course he came running at that point. Absalom said that it would have been better for him not to come back to Jerusalem than to have come and be treated so disrespectfully by his dad not calling for him, his dad saying that he couldn't go into his presence. He wanted Joab to set up a meeting with the king. In verse 33, Joab went to the king and told him, So David summoned Absalom, who came to the king and paid homage with his face to the ground before him, Then the king kissed Absalom. Okay, so we may think, reading that verse, that the issue has been resolved, but all we're doing is reading the words, the word of God that is inspired. It tells us what happened, but what we don't see and what the Bible does not tell us is how it happened. It doesn't describe for us the facial expressions. It doesn't describe for us the sincerity or lack of sincerity in this exchange and in this meeting. I suppose, I suspect, that the meeting between David and Absalom was awkward at best. Sure, Absalom bowed his face to the ground before the king, and it says the king kissed Absalom, but I think that kiss may have felt forced. All we know is that Absalom left and very quickly began a personal assault against his dad, up to this meeting, he was upset that he was being ignored, but his father had nothing to worry about. Absalom wasn't going to cause him problems, but now he was going to actively work to make his dad pay. So we have two men who both believe they are on the side of justice. They see each other as guilty, and they have been away from each other so long that the relationship has, has it's no longer warm, it's as cold as ice, it no longer exists, so they could still work this out, but they're refusing to do so, which leads to the problems in the next chapter. I'm telling you that uh, families above all should love each other. The parents should lead the way and love and forgive and and even sacrifice. That's what love is. Uh, w- whenever we are called to... In Ephesians chapter 5, I mean, some people love to jump to wives, submit to your husbands, but if you look at the verse right before it, it basically says that if we are spirit-filled, Ephesians 5.18, then we're going to, the verse after Ephesians 5.18, verse 19 says that we're going to sing and make melody in our hearts, so we're going to be happy if we're spirit-filled. The next thing is, is we're going to be grateful. And the third thing in verse uh, 21 is that we are submitting to one another. And uh, I'm telling you that submission is not merely the wife's duty, it's the husband's duty to his wife. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, of course, it's the child's duty to the parent, but it's also the parent's duty to the child. The parent is not living for him or herself. They are doing whatever is necessary to help raise up the next godly generation. And in fact, we see a warning specifically given to fathers in Ephesians 6, uh, where it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Don't make your kids angry. Well, David certainly did this. I do believe that they did meet. The Bible says that they met. It does say that Absalom bowed down. It says that David kissed him. But I don't think that that provided the warmth, the satisfaction. It didn't give Absalom anything that he was looking for. And so as we get to the next chapter, Absalom goes on the attack. He goes on the offensive. Second Samuel chapter 15, in the opening verses, we read that Absalom stood at the city gate as the people of Israel came and went. This is after the meeting that he had with his dad that Something happened there or something did not happen there that Absalom wanted to happen. And Absalom went out angry and he immediately begins to undermine his dad's authority there in Jerusalem. And so he went to the city gate and uh, this is where the people of Israel would come in and go out. And he put on a show and talked about how he cared deeply for the people and was so sorry that the king wasn't meeting their needs in a timely manner. And they were coming to the king to seek justice, but he just didn't have time for them, Absalom said. Verse 4, he added, If only someone would appoint me judge in the land. This is Absalom talking. Then anyone who had a grievance or dispute could come to me, and I would make sure he received justice. Oh, so Absalom is still talking about justice. Because he does not believe, I think it's because he has not gotten past the injustice that happened years earlier, years earlier. Uh, I think uh, if we're doing the math, I think it's about seven years earlier. So Absalom did this day after day, week after week, more and more people were hearing from him and what they, they were hearing what they wanted to hear. And he was telling them what they, he knew that they wanted to hear. Second Samuel 15 verse 6, Absalom did this to all the Israelites who came to the king for a settlement right? So as they were headed to the king, Absalom was catching them before they got there. And in fact, the very last part of verse six says, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now I'm going to get a bit personal here. Of course, no names or anything like that, but I'm just going to say that I can identify a few Absaloms in my 20 years of ministry. I'm certain that you can identify, if you're in leadership, you can identify some Absaloms too. But as a pastor, I cannot do everything and be all things to all the people. So inevitably, some people are just going to get upset because I did not meet meet a need that they believe that I should have. And I'm telling you, it's that way in most, if not all, churches. Yet I've had a few guys and gals in various churches who were always the first to show up when people had a need. Always the first. They were there. And when a group in the church started to follow them, they outwardly demonstrated humility. But in private meetings with me, they made it very clear that they had a following. And sometimes it's not in not so subtle ways. They made it clear that I needed to run things by them before attempting to lead the church in a certain direction. They had worked to gain the heart of the people, and I was essentially David in the scenario who they were trying to strong arm. I'm telling you, this is not just a church thing. This is a people thing. This is what Absaloms do. They undermine the leader. They believe that they, and I'm telling you, if you're in a position of leadership and you've got the stress, I'm telling you for the last two and a half years, and of course it's eased up now, but I'm telling you those, that year and a half or two years um, when COVID hit and then that time, th- that, those were dark years for leaders everywhere. No matter what you did, you were getting people upset, and there were many occasions for Absaloms to step in and steal the hearts of people in churches, in businesses, or anywhere else. This is what Absaloms do. They take advantage of the discontentment that people may have. They pour gas on that to fuel it, and then they pose themselves as the remedy to that problem and they pull people away from the leader and they love to have a growing following and eventually they may be able to do what Absalom did. Absalom went to the unsuspecting king and he asked if he could go to Hebron. He went to his dad after he had stolen the hearts. David probably hadn't caught on yet. And when Absalom arrived in Hebron, he proclaimed himself to be the king, not his dad. And since he had won over the hearts of the people, they willingly switched their allegiance to him. Listen to verses 13 and 14. Then an informer came to David and reported, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all the servants with him in Jerusalem, get up, we have to flee or we will not escape from Absalom. Leave quickly or he will overtake us quickly. Heap disaster on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. He wanted to get out. He felt that he had no choices. Well, why didn't he fight? Why didn't he fight? Let me give you three, at least three possibilities. We're not told why, but at least three possibilities. One is he probably didn't want to lead Israel into a civil war. So maybe he didn't want to fight because the nation that he was leading, he didn't want to hurt these people. He would rather be hurt himself than for the organization, the the church, for the nation to be hurt. So maybe that was it. He didn't want to lead them into civil war. Two, maybe he also didn't want to fight against his son. This was personal. He would rather take the loss than risk killing his own son. And sometimes that's what Davids do in scenarios like this, is they may not fight. And you wonder why in the world are they not standing up for what's rightfully theirs? They, and some would say, well, they're a coward. There may be other more noble reasons why some people are not willing to stand up and fight. The third thing is, is he probably also realized that he may not win he wondered how many people have gone over. How many hearts has Absalom stolen? You know, do I even have enough people in my army to to fight right now? He he was wondering if he could even win. So just leaving was the best option. Seemed the best option. Well, as David flees with his men down into the Kidron Valley and over the Mount of Olives, he sends. A few people back. He sends Zadok, the priest, and the Levites back with the Ark of the Covenant and essentially said, if it's the Lord's will, then I will come back and I will once again be with the Ark of the Covenant, if it's the Lord's will. And also, the, the priest and the Levites, they, they could every now and then get some information to David about what was taking place in Jerusalem. If there were any opportunities to maybe come back Further, David sent back Hushai, and we're going to read about him tomorrow, Hushai, so that he could counteract Ahithophel's counsel, and we're going to read about that tomorrow. Honestly, this is pretty sad. David's sin was the umbrella under which all the other sins happened. In fact, sometimes I believe that the person in leadership, whether it's the parents, maybe the father, the husband... Or maybe it's the pastor or, or messenger of the church, you know, a minister of the church, or maybe it's someone who leads an organization. That whenever there's something going on, something amiss in their heart, or they do something where God is now not blessing them, then it's not them who and not just merely them who end up getting hurt. Now the protection that they would have provided is not there now and other people get hurt. So I do believe that David's sin of lust, adultery, uh, lying and deception and murder, I think all of that was an umbrella under, under which all of these other sins happened. Amnon's lust led to rape and then to his murder. King David's refusal to judge Amnon was apparently the reason. Absalom was blind with revenge and eventually stole the kingdom from his dad. We're just looking at all of these things that are going on. All of this and more is because of sinful choices. Choices that were in violation of God's clear word. So when God gives us commands in Scripture and, expect, and expects us to obey them, we need to understand that they are for our good and the good of those around us but when we disobey bad things will happen to us and they will happen to others god's commandments are for our good when we sin we bring on all sorts of possibilities of bad things just listen to deuteronomy 10:13 and you must always obey the lord's commands and decrees that i am giving you today for your own Good. God's Word really is for our good. It really is in our best interest and those around us for us to be serious about understanding, reading, understanding God's Word, and obeying it. Okay, so let's look at Luke 17. Uh, Jesus gives us some warnings in verses 1 through 4. Well, Jesus begins by telling us that there's always going to be things thrown at us in this life that tempt us to stumble into sin. But he says this, verses 1 and 2, But woe to the one through whom they come. Woe to the one through whom, the, woe to the one that does it. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. One of these little ones? Jesus has children in front of him, and he is using them as an illustration of a child of God, someone who is saved, who is, in essence, a little one who is dependent upon the Father. And so what Jesus is saying is, he is saying that it would be better for us if we were murdered or committed suicide by having a millstone around our neck and cast into the sea, it would be better for us to be murdered or to commit suicide than to cause a fellow believer to stumble into sin. I want us to feel the weight of sin in Jesus' eyes. I'm telling you, listening to what he says, he takes sin so much more seriously than we do, which tells us that we'd better change our thinking about disobedience. It is far more serious than we realize. But what if we are the ones that someone else causes to stumble? What if we are the ones that someone sins against? Are we to take the millstone tied around their neck? And, well, you get the idea. (laughs) The answer is, of course not. Listen to what Jesus says in verses 3 and 4. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, and I believe in the context, sins against you, if he causes you to stumble, if he sins against you, then the next thing is rebuke him. And that word rebuke in the Greek means a strong disapproval. Go and just be honest go and be honest. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to, in fact, uh, we, we are to speak the truth in love, but that does not mean that we cannot be firm, right? Brother, you, what you said, what you did, that was wrong, and you should not have done that. And I just want to know, are you truly repentant of that? So rebuke him, and if he repents... If he says, oh, I'm I'm so sorry. Yes, I, I knew I shouldn't have done that. I knew I shouldn't have said it. I am so sorry. I will not do that again. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. But we may ask, but what if they sin against me and they don't repent? Well, then we need to wisely consider our options. One of the things is if it is illegal, if the sin that they committed against us, it's illegal, we should consider getting the authorities involved. I'm telling you, there are some legal issues, there are some offenses that require that we report, such as a sexual assault, on a minor, there there are other things as well, but there are some where there is no debate, there is no question. You report. It doesn't matter if it's someone who is a close friend. You must report. But there are other offenses where it's nothing of that nature, and it is not required that we report. But we uh, something was done to us or against us or whatever, and so we have the option to get the authorities involved. Or we also have the right to let it go. Part of being a Christian is we. Don't necessarily seek revenge here. I would tell you one of the things that uh, that would come into play is we can certainly, as Christians, lay down our arms, as it were, and not seek revenge and just let the thing go. We can do that. We do have the right. Jesus told us if he slaps you on one cheek, let him slap you on the other. If he forces you to go one mile, go the extra, you know, just to uh, be gracious. Um, but if... And, and this this is a lot of wisdom needs to go into this, and even counsel, maybe sometimes legal counsel, maybe a Christian counsel, uh, you know, a pastor or or a Christian friend, a seasoned Christian friend. If you believe that what was done to you is a pattern and this person is doing it to other people and will do it to more, then I believe that you probably have an obligation to get this stopped so that future people don't get hurt. So... We do have those things to think about. You know, what if they sin against me and they don't repent? Well, you know, some requires to go to law. Some, we have the option to go to the authorities. uh, Others, we just let it go. Well, you know, we may also just stay away from that person. And I'm talking about the lesser offense. I mean, of course, the bigger things, but even maybe some of the lesser. We are commanded to love everybody, but Jesus didn't command us to be everybody's best friend. Sometimes we can love from a distance. Jesus did not uh, act like the Pharisees were his best friends. Listening to the way that he talked to them, he confronted them with truth, but it was clear they were not good friends of Jesus. And so we certainly can love from a distance. And so if somebody sins against you and doesn't repent, well, you don't have to be their best friend. You love them from a distance. And, uh, But I would tell you that ultimately we step aside with whatever other options we may choose. We also most certainly step aside and let God deal with it in his own way and in his own time. Romans 12, 17 through 21 says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And if God does not deal with the wrong here in this life, that's what the judgment day is for when he writes all wrongs. In verses 5 through 10, Jesus is now talking about faith and duty. And in verses 5 and 6, Jesus tells us that we don't need more faith. We just need the right kind of faith, and it could uproot a mulberry tree and throw it into the sea. Now, I want you to know Jesus never told, told a mulberry tree to be uprooted and be cast into the sea. Jesus did not exercise faith and move a mountain. He didn't do that. So Jesus is not telling us that these are things that we should do because he himself did not do it. Probably he was just walking by a mulberry tree and just just happened to say that. What I want us to remember, though, is that when we see this, sometimes the the definition to a word in our mind is not the definition that Jesus had. So we can look at the same word, but we can think a very different thought. When we see Jesus, when we hear Jesus saying, hey, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say this mole." So when we see, when we read that, we're thinking, hey, if I can just have faith. And so we just feel like faith is something we have to work up and it's strength of mind. That's faith. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is not working. It's not working. Biblical faith is resting, Biblical faith has three basic components. One, you have to hear it or read it. You have to hear it or read it. Read in the word of God what God has said um, what, or, or you know something that you believe that God wants to do. You, then number two, you have to understand what you are reading or what you are hearing. And then three, the third step is you trust. You take that step. You take that step, trusting in what God has said. So you don't have to work up faith. You're just resting in what God has said, believing that God is going to do what he said he's going to do. And so that's what faith is. So faith is not some power that we we wield. It is instead resting in what we believe the Lord has said or what he will do. We simply trust in him. True biblical faith is resting in who the Lord is and what the Lord has said. Well, then Jesus gives a brief parable about a slave whose job was simply to do the master's will. Further, he wasn't to expect to be thanked because he was only doing his job. He was a slave after all. Your translation may say servant, but it's the Greek word doulos. It means slave. In the same way, our primary commitment is to obey our master, King Jesus. Read his word put it into practice. However, we do have a master is so loving and gracious that he will reward us for our obedience on judgment day. And then in verses 11 through 19, we read about uh, 10 men who were healed of leprosy. Listen to verses 11 through 13. While traveling to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, passed between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him, and they stopped at a distance and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus told them to go and show themselves to the priests, in verse 14 he said that, and the fact that he said go to the temple to the Jewish priests, this lets us know that most of these lepers were Jews so he was sending them to the priest to be inspected and declared clean according to Leviticus 14 they would have to dust off Jesus was just constantly healing lepers uh, Leviticus 14 we never read that it was used the, the process of cleansing a leper, of declaring a leper cleansed um, and able to reintegrate back into society. We never see that Leviticus 14 was used on an Israelite in the Old Testament. But then Jesus shows up. He's just—I mean, take a number. You know, they would—they would, they would just—he was just constantly sending people that were there that had leprosy. And so Jesus told them, they were Jews, he said, hey, go through the process. And so they trusted Jesus, and uh, they were healed on the way. They were healed of their leprosy, and they were able to look at their skin and look at each other, and they knew that they had been healed. Yet, only one came back to thank Jesus. He fell face down at Jesus' feet and expressed his heartfelt gratitude. And listen to Jesus' response in verses 17 through 19. Then Jesus said, so he didn't think this. He said it out loud. Were not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? Didn't any person return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up and go your way. Your faith has saved you. Friend, I want you to realize in verses 17 through 19, as Jesus said these words, I want you to realize that Jesus pays attention to whether or not we say thank you when he does something for us. We really need to express our gratitude for all of his love, grace, and mercy and do so regularly because just as he paid attention and said, you know what, there were 10 that I healed and only one came back. Jesus is counting who's thankful and who's not. Let's be counted among those who are filled with gratitude. Then let's finish up by looking at verses 20 through 37. Um, And, uh, you know, we get to this, we understand this next part. uh, We need to understand, uh, in order to understand this next part, we need to understand what the kingdom of God is. Simply put, the kingdom of God is the reign of Jesus in a child of God. So if you're in the kingdom, what that means is, is that you have a king and your king is Jesus. And what does a king do? He tells his subjects what to do. And what's the subject's responsibility? To obey. And so to be in the kingdom means that Jesus is not just our savior. He's our Lord. He calls the shots in our life. We read his word. We obey it. So when someone gets saved, Jesus becomes their king, and their job is then to simply do what the king desires. Obedience is our response. I want you to get that. But in a collective sense, the kingdom of God is all of the folks, both dead and alive, who serve King Jesus. So I could travel to Timbuktu and and meet a believer, meet a Jesus follower, and I wouldn't know his language. I wouldn't know his culture. I probably wouldn't like his food or probably many other things that I would just find so unfamiliar to me. It's not comfortable for me. But since I follow Jesus and since he follows Jesus, then we're both in the same kingdom of God. He and I both are in the kingdom. And in fact, we're brothers. We're brothers in Christ. So that's what the kingdom is. It is being saved, coming under the rule of King Jesus. We are in his kingdom. He tells us what to do in his word, and we obey, and it also creates this big family that we get to enjoy. So some folks ask Jesus about the kingdom. Listen to verses 20 and 21. When he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, See here or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst, or one translation says, is within you. The kingdom of God is invisible. It's something subjective. It's something that happens internally inside of someone. And once again, what that means is, is that who is in the kingdom? It's every single person who is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. Well, one of the things, I just want to summarize this section really quick. One of the things Jesus does not do is give us as much information as we would like about the end times and the coming of the kingdom. But he does say that he's going to be rejected and suffer before he comes in the rapture. In the last days, he said he, he, he's telling us people will live as if everything will continue as it's always gone. And this is why sudden tragedies are always so traumatic. They were unprepared, right? And so there's people that are just going about their daily duties and all of a sudden, boom, it happens. And uh, then we also read that some are going to be taken. I believe this is referring to the rapture and some are going to be left and uh, then this chapter ends. I mean, I know that I've just summarized this very quickly, but I've got to bring this to a close. Then this chapter ends with a cryptic word from Jesus. Verse 37, where, Lord, they asked him uh, regarding the uh, the kingdom, he said to them, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. They seem to be asking, where's all this going to happen? And Jesus said that just as a body can be located by watching where the birds, the eagles, the vultures are flying. So when you see all of these things that are taking place and the things that he's talked about in other passages, that's where you know that this is taking place, that that uh, that the rapture has happened and the end time events are taking place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and thank you so much uh, for the family of friends where all of us are joining together on this journey to read through your word this year and dig into it. Lord, there's a lot of time required, especially for those who are not only reading your word, but are also listening uh, to the podcast and Lord, I thank you for them. And I do pray, Lord Jesus, that ultimately uh, this is about us growing in our understanding and enjoyment of your word so that we can apply it because in so doing, as your Holy Spirit enables us to do that, in so doing, we get to not only obey and become more like you, Jesus, but we also put ourselves in a place where you are free to bless however and whenever you choose. Uh, Lord, we do want to live our lives on purpose in a way that glorifies you. Help us to do this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen well i do hope that today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy god's word so that you can apply it in the power of the holy spirit the enjoying the bible podcast is a ministry of the first baptist church in polk city florida check us out at fbcpolkcity.com see you tomorrow